Hello and welcome to the Unnamed Automotive Podcast. My name is Sammy Hatchisad, and with me, as always, is my good friend and fellow automotive journalist, Benjamin Hunting. Say hi to the people, Ben. Greetings, human and non-corporeal listeners. Greetings to everyone. If this is the first time you're listening to this podcast, thank you for trying something new. And apologies to everyone who's already listened to this podcast and this intro a hundred bajillion times. Uh, ben and I are a pair of automotive journalists, and you can find our work all over the internet. In fact, Ben... Why don't you go ahead and talk about some of the recent publications you've written for? You can find my work at Motor Trend, at Inside Hook, and at Haggerty. And you can find my work at Autotrader.ca, as well as Nouveau Magazine and EV Pulse. This week, we've got some mainstream cars to talk about, which I think is pretty important, because uh, usually Ben drives like the fanciest BMW uh, every week. So this week, Ben... Tell me what you've got uh, What you've got coming down the pipeline here. I think you're mistaking me for Sammy driving a Ferrari on the racetrack, Hajisad, but that's that's just my perspective. That was 2020. We're in a whole new year now. And although I have driven a Porsche, we're talking about mainstream cars, Ben. Hit me with it. Okay, well, three weeks into the year, I have driven a Subaru Crosstrek, Sammy, a 2021 Subaru Crosstrek. And I'm going to say it's been a very, very long time since I've driven a Crosstrek. I think maybe six years, maybe more. Uh, What? Really? Well, I remember when the product launched. I want to say it was like 2012 or 2013. And I drove it then. And then somehow I've driven everything else in the Subaru lineup probably multiple times Except for the Crosstrek. I don't know how that happened. But I've rectified it, and I did it just in time because for 2021, there's kind of some big news for that particular vehicle. And then it's got an an engine upgrade, Sammy. Uh, It's not a standard engine upgrade. You can still get last year's 2-liter 4-cylinder engine, which I think puts out around 150 horsepower. But uh, there's a new 2.5-liter that's available almost across the entire range of Crosstrek models. Nice. Okay, so... First of all, it's surprising that the um, Crosstrek has eluded you for so long. And if I remember correctly, you've driven like the most exclusive Subaru products ever. Like, haven't you driven the S209 or something like that? <laughs> I have. Well, yeah, that's that's true. I, I don't know how I got into the S209, of which 209 <laughs> were built, but did not manage to drive the Crosstrek. That is that is a little strange. But it's but not because... Makes, but seriously, that does make you, like, the perfect person to test drive a Crosstrek. Because if you know, if you can assess the S209 for all of its its pros and cons, um, you can probably, you know, trace that, that like, corporal heritage... Sorry, that corporate heritage from <laughs> one car to the other. Right? Moving on, uh, I want to say that the reason Wait. I... I haven't been avoiding the Crosstrek, Sammy. I, I had no issues. When it first came out, I was into it. I mean, the weakest aspect of the vehicle was the 2-liter engine, especially with the CVT, the continuously variable automatic. It was not a quick car. Uh, the reason Subaru kind of diluted that motor was because they were looking for better fuel mileage. Uh, the all-wheel drive system, the weight and complexity of that was sucking down a lot of gas on their older engine designs. So, that you know, the CVT... The, the two-liter engine, this was a formula for efficiency. Now you have a choice. You can either stick with that formula for efficiency or you can snag this two-and-a-half-liter engine. And uh, I recommend that you go for the bigger motor. It, it has 182 horsepower. It uh, gets you to 60 in about seven and a half seconds. And it just generally feels a lot stronger at pretty much any speed than any other version of the Crosstrek. Okay, so... Um, do you remember when automakers were all about improving the fuel efficiency of their gas cars and we had to deal with two liter four cylinder engines or, or smaller and, uh, 
now it seems like we're no longer as interested in eking out the most uh, fuel economy out of all these cars. And now we're offering bigger engines and turbocharged engines, as you saw with the Mazda uh, lineup recently. Well, I think the turbocharged engines are a bit of a cop-out because if you absolutely baby them, they act like smaller engines. But if you drive them normally, they use just as much fuel as a larger engine would, right? So it's kind of a – it's like a loss leader. It allows the automakers to advertise a certain level of fuel consumption. And then in the real world, you probably will have difficulty seeing that unless you drive like you're 90 years old. Okay, so we're talking about the Crosstrack, this 2.5-liter four-cylinder... 2.5? 2.4? It's a 2.5, yes. 2.5-liter four-cylinder engine, and it makes, um, what, next? you said an extra 40 or more horsepower? 30, so it's 182 horsepower, and for fuel mileage, you're getting about 23, 24 combined in the real world. Okay, that's not... Awesome. It's not awesome. It's not <laughs> terrible. What's weird about the Crosstrek is it, it's very car-like. That's it's it's intended to be an SUV or a crossover. Sorry, hence the name. But really, it feels like a bit of a lifted Impreza, uh, mm-hmm. kind of maybe a replacement. Remember, we used to have the Outback Sport. Do I remember? Yeah. No. Back in the day, it was essentially a fancy Outback. I mean, yeah. a fancy Impreza. A fancy Impreza with, with with some body cladding. So I'm not going to say the Crosstrek is a is the direct replacement for that but they're very similar it's got the cladding it's roughly the same size pretty much the same inside for the most part but this is a good formula uh i did a lot with the cross trek during the week that i had it i went on a road trip about 300 miles i hauled a whole bunch of stuff to my storage locker and in fact it's funny because when i went to pick the stuff up i was really hesitant i wasn't sure it was going to fit it was a ton of boxes and and larger boxes and i was feeling dumb because the week before i'd had the escalade and I was like, oh, I should have just moved everything then. But I mean, I, yeah, when it comes to which car could put in more, could could handle more boxes between Escalade and Crosstrek, that's an Escalade Pro, right? Really, there. really. <laughs> but absolutely everything I needed to move fit inside the Crosstrek. I was really surprised. Uh, it's, it, and I I was prepared to make two trips. I didn't have to do it. So that that was nice. Um, it's it's a very useful vehicle. It kind of looks. A little strange from certain angles. I think it's a one of those vehicles that from the front it looks a lot better than from the rear. It's just kind of truncated in the back, but overall it's relatively handsome. I mean, it's it's it looks like a Subaru. It doesn't. It, it's not you know extroverted. It uh, it's somewhat rugged, but it's not over the top. I think it's a really good entry level crossover if you really don't mind uh, the extra fuel mileage involved with all wheel drive and the larger motor. It, you know. It's in, – in the real world, I think that the 2-liter and the 2.5-liter are closer than you think. Uh, I know that on the highway, they're almost identical. It's like 34 miles per gallon versus 33. And I did a lot – like I said, did a lot of highway driving in it, and it did not use all that much gas. So it's, it's a very – it's relatively frugal for what it is. Okay, there's a lot to talk about with the Crosstrek, although I do think it's one of the most inoffensive crossovers uh, or vehicles that one can buy. There is very little – if you can handle that that somewhat sedate uh, motor in the 2-liter, and I'm sure the 2.5 isn't you know, a huge jump in terms of, uh, of performance, is it? Well, I think it is. I think you know, the 2-liter, you can get a 6-speed manual. If you can get that car, if you can get that transmission and you're happy with that transmission and the trim levels that it's restricted to, you're probably going to be happy with that. But if you're going to the CVT and the 2.5 is CVT only, I think it's a worthy upgrade because I yeah. never once while driving the vehicle felt like I needed more power in the sense that 
I know it's not a sporty vehicle. I know I'm not going to be racing around, but I was able to pass on the highway. I was able to merge. I didn't have any issues in traffic. I, I never really cursed the fact that I had a CVT. It, everything went – the system worked well together. So I think it's worth the upgrade. And, and the upgrade's available almost entirely across the board. How much is the extra motor? So I don't have the exact numbers because here's what's confusing. In Canada, Subaru offers very different trim levels than they do in the United States. So uh, the vehicle I had is something called the Outdoor, which is maybe like top three quarters of the uh, Crosstrek trim walk. But in the U.S., it goes base, premium, sport, limited, and then hybrid. So I would say that the version I had, it was similar to what the U.S. premium would be with a few extra features inside and a few missing features. Like I didn't have a sunroof, but I did have EyeSight, which is the uh, active safety systems that are available on pretty much every automatic transmission Subaru. I had a nice stereo system. I had nice leather, but uh, it wasn't the full-on um, luxury version of the vehicle. So I'd say price-wise, this is something around the twenty-five, $26,000 uh, level. Okay. Um, now the, the, as I mentioned, this is a pretty, like a standard runabout sort of car. You're not going to be, uh, it's not a very, it's not very aggressive or sporty. It doesn't really reward that kind of behavior. I do feel that, um, uh, many Subarus actually really come alive in the winter weather. Did you have any snow? Did you drive it through any, any poor conditions or anything like that? Sure. I mean, we, we've had snow and rain for the last couple of weeks, so it's been freezing on and off. And uh, I didn't have any issues. Uh, my alley is fairly snowy, and you know, it's it's like any Subaru. It's going to do absolutely fine in those circumstances. And I had good tires on it. I had Blizzak tires on it, which yeah. were like night and day compared to the absolute garbage Pirellis I had on that BMW. <laughs> I, I'm serious, though. Like, if anybody is concerned about their confidence in, in snow or poor weather, there's something about this, the way the Subaru all-wheel drive system and when you're equipping it with really good winter tires, these things feel like they're unstoppable. Like, well, in a good way. They're, they are stoppable. They're, they're controllable in every way. I, I want to um, correct myself, uh, Sammy, if I can for a second, just about availability of the motor. So I'll in, allow it. In, in Canada, it's available almost across the board once you get above base. In the U.S., it's actually standard once you start with the sport trim. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's, it's standard on the limited, which is above that. So my vehicle, like I said, I think it's above premium. So, like, between, between premium and sports. So, in the U.S., it looks like you're going to have to pay about $27,000 to get the engine as standard. Um, the the Crosstrek, though, plays... It, it always feels a little bit bigger than the other cars that it competes with, like the Honda HRV or the Hyundai Kona. Yeah, I would uh, agree. It, there's something about the, the size, the dimensions. I don't know if it's the exterior dimensions or the interior dimensions, but the it does line up price-wise with those vehicles. Those are the sort of um, vehicles that when you're fully loaded, they're just around $30,000, but you don't have to get that fully loaded model. You're, you're going to be um, in a in a family-friendly, I think somewhat family-friendly, small family-friendly, is that a point? Is that a, is that a segment? It's it's reasonably um, family-friendly. I, I wouldn't, yeah. you know, it's... it's Spacious, Sorry. Yeah, and and if you wanted to load up the um, the cross track, I mean, it's it's twenty eight thousand. That's that's the top tier for it. It's it's not a very expensive vehicle, and it's not the kind of vehicle that's going to kill you with options either. Most of the stuff that you can add to the cross track after the fact is accessories. So, mm-hmm. um, I think it's I think it's a reasonably frugal vehicle for a family that just wants extra space. Maybe they they want the crossover look, but they like the package that an Impreza hatchback provides 
Uh, it's Subaru's filling uh, a, a white space in their lineup with this vehicle, and it's been a success for them. Uh, for that reason, it's it's a, a crossover alternative to their entry level hatch. I mean, it doesn't get much simpler than that. And they're not a company that offers a ton of vehicles. So uh, the fact that this is still in the lineup indicates it has been somewhat of a success for them. That is a really weird way to put it. I didn't. Exp- I wouldn't have explained it as a white space sort of vehicle. This is a, a, a compact, a subcompact crossover um, in every other sense of the, of the of the word, right? Like, there's so many other vehicles that do that do this. No, right? but it, is it really sub? Is it, is it really subcompact though? I mean, it's basically an Impreza, which is a compact car. Yeah, but once you go up to like a crossover, it seems to go down a size segment. So you're saying that in comparison to other crossovers? Yeah. Even though it is bigger than other subcompact crossovers, like dimensionally, like say the um, what's one of the smaller, really smaller ones, like the tracks and the Trailblazer. Mm, yeah, those are pretty small. I'd say that the yeah. Crosstrek feels larger inside. It is much bigger than those two, but I was saying more to the Kona or the like. The Seltos seems like the right size. I'm actually and, I'm actually going to be driving one of those very soon, so it'll be interesting to do that comparison. Okay, good call. And um, otherwise, I would say that the one of the more important things about, um, you know, people picking a Subaru is that they use a different kind of um, safety system, like the the eyesight, which is a camera based uh, safety system. Yeah. And I find that more reliable or less reliable than some of the others like radar or radar and camera based. Well, it's it's not just camera based because it you still have a blind spot system on the Crosstrek. Oh, right. Yeah, and sorry, and that's I, I don't know if it's available on every uh version of the Crosstrek or if it's a an, an an option because it's not included as part of eyesight because it relies on side side sensors, sonar and that kind of thing or radar however right. they're doing it. But I I did want to talk about the Crosstrek's eyesight safety system. Because it, it gives you, in addition to things like lane departure warning and forward collision warning and that kind of thing, uh, there's also like a limited self-driving self, self system that goes with it. Mm-hmm. Uh, when the cruise controls, you mean adaptive cruise control and lane keeping? Yeah, but it's, yeah. it's presented as – there's a couple of ways that Subaru does the lane keeping. So you can have it where it centers the vehicle in the lane. Or you can have it where it's keeping the lane, but it's not as rigid as to where the vehicle is inside of it. Kind of uh, that – there's two settings for it. And when you're in the latter one, the one that isn't that strict, you get a little bit of ping-ponging, right? Yeah. Because it's just kind of drifting from one side of the lane to the other, although it is doing a fairly decent job of steering. But if you turn on the stricter version where it's trying to center you in the lane all the time, if you have your hands on the wheel, which you should, (laughs) you're going to feel constant tugs. It's going to constantly be making adjustments. It feels nervous. And it's, it's really hard to drive for a long period with that system on. I don't know if you've experienced that. I haven't experienced it in the uh, Crosstrek, but I think when I drove the Ford Escape, I said something similar. Like when you have that feature on, it just feels like the it feels like the the wheels just kind of like jiggling in place, and it's so yeah. weird to have that. It's exactly um, that's exactly how it felt. So I didn't use it; I, I turned it <laughs> off, and I do use it on other vehicles uh, for longer trips, just to have that extra guidance there. If the system is decent and it's going to follow along in traffic, and my hands are on the wheel, I will use it. But in the Crosstrek, I turned it off. I just used the Adaptive Cruise. What I did like about the Adaptive Cruise otherwise was it had multiple settings for how aggressive it was going to accelerate and decelerate. And uh, there's one there was, I think there was one called Eco. There was like a standard, a comfort, and dynamic. And I That's had to do... 
I'm sorry. Ooh, I don't remember experiencing that before. Yeah, I had it in comfort for a while, and it was okay, but I found the braking to be a little bit too aggressive. Like, it would zoom up and then slow way down, and then I would have to, you know, pull out and, and go around the vehicle. But the dynamic allowed me to get closer and to accelerate more quickly. It was. It just seemed like it had lower limits, and that was better on the highway because I was able to plan a little bit easier when I was going to mm-hmm. be pulling out. Because with any adaptive cruise control system, you can't just you know rely on the fact that oh, there's a car coming and the car is going to slow down or speed up when I want it to. You have to know how close you can get before the vehicle starts to lose momentum before you make your lane change. Right. Um- this is this seems to be a more common feature. Uh, I know we're now talking a little bit about the across check a little bit more, but this like idea that you can have a an adaptive cruise control system that not just you don't just change the the gap distance between the car in front of you, but how quickly or how the car will respond. I, t- I mentioned this in the Genesis that it has like a bunch of parameters that you can adjust, like like um, aggressiveness and responsiveness to the the change in distance. So it's interesting to see this feature coming to to products like Subaru. Definitely. And, you know, uh, I don't really have too much more to say about the Crosstrek. Uh, I, I think it's something, if you're in the market for a small crossover, definitely take a look. Uh, it's, it, there's nothing but really... But why not, why not just get a, why not just get an impressive wagon again? I really couldn't tell you. Right. But I also couldn't tell you why people are flocking to crossovers like they are. So, those people that do want to cross over, this is, a, I think, a very valid choice and something that deserves a test drive alongside whatever else you might be looking at. Okay, cool. Um, I'm gonna, uh, let's change subjects and talk about the car I drove, if that's okay. Yeah, we can do that for five to seven minutes. Okay, perfect. Um, I'm driving everyone's favorite car and favorite punching bag, the Toyota Corolla, which is important to bring up because the Corolla can be both you know, a very popular product, but also some somewhat of a like forgotten product. Like most people don't really care or aren't enthusiastic about Corollas. In fact, um, I think the, the mere mention of the the name Corolla probably will cause some people to tune out of the podcast altogether. Let's hope not. And and yet they sell hundreds of thousands of these vehicles a year. Yeah, actually, it's worth talking about the sales figures here because the sales in 2020 dropped by um, a good chunk, like um, almost. 20, almost 30% from 304,000 in 2019 to 237,000 in 2020. Now, the vehicle I tested wasn't your run-of-the-mill Corolla, although it's technically, it still is somewhat run-of-the-mill. I'm driving what's known as the SE Apex Edition. Apex Edition. Which is designed to be a sportier looking and feeling um, Corolla. Now, I think this is really important to bring up because... Sporty compacts were a thing, are a thing. I mean, we just mentioned the Subaru um, WRX, which is a sporty compact, as well as the STI version, which is a really hot hatch or or hot sedan. Hot sedan. Um, and we have that with the Honda Civic Type R and SE. And even Hyundai is getting into this game of really sporty um, compact sedans. The Apex Edition is not at that level. In fact, it's barely a lukewarm hot hatch or a lukewarm um, compact sedan. It is a, a, a an appearance package. It also includes a little bit improved um, chassis upgrades. And the version I had, I was surprised, um, featured a six-speed manual transmission, which is actually kind of rare these days. So what do, you, what do you get when you say, you know, appearance package? What does that mean for the, the SE Apex Edition? So uh, Wait, now also, is- also, does it say Apex Edition anywhere on the vehicle? 
Oh my god, it's a huge badge on the on the rear right hand side of the vehicle, right underneath the tail. What about inside? No, no. I didn't but how am I going to remember? I know. How will you remember? There are a few bronze in my model. There are a few a few bronze like stitching like elements inside the cabin. Um, I think that's the best way to describe it. Like the the shift boot on the uh, on the gear selector or the gear stick is uh, has brown stitching. And um, what else do you want? Do I want to tell you about this? You asked. You asked about the body package. Yeah. Well, it I mean has, the appearance. I mean, you said it was different. Do you get different paint colors? You get like a body kit. What, how does it look? So my model is this uh, kind of standouty gray. Um, <laughs> wait a minute. Wait a minute. Standout gray. <laughs> yeah, it, it's a different kind of gray, almost like a flat gray. I'm going to say that any color where if it was a foggy night, you wouldn't see it can't be described as standout. (laughs) This is a different looking gray. What can I say? And it has these bronze accents on a side skirt, a front lip spoiler, and a rear kind of diffuser. And there's a black um, lid uh, trunk lid spoiler as well. Inspired by air racing? I'm not sure about that. Ben is referring to a Lexus product uh, press release that occurred today where it it was described as being... Um, inspired by air racing. I'm not sure the Corolla goes that far. One of the most interesting things about this Corolla, as soon as you turn it on, you notice that it's somewhat different. It has a uh, customized sport-tuned exhaust system, which is weird, well, right? So like, this is going beyond appearance package here, Matt. If well, now we've got sound package. Like sound package? Yes. Um, and it sounds a little bit uh, throatier, a little bit deeper is the best way to describe it. But... Um, it doesn't sound like altogether like awesome. Like it doesn't sound badass, right? It just sounds louder and and deeper. So like, everyone knows that you're driving your Corolla around, right? Um, and I I'm, I'm trying to describe this as as neutrally as I can because I don't know whether or not to laugh at the idea of a of a sported up um, Civic. When, I mean, sported up Corolla when you can get a, an actually enjoyable compact sedan at almost any other automaker that still makes compact sedan. But sedans. look. The, is this, this is the hatchback version, correct? No, it's the sedan. Okay, so so the hatchback is fun to drive. Yeah, I think and it's legitimately. Sedan, yeah, so, so I just think it's legitimately fun. I mean, it's not fast, but it is yeah. engaging. So the Corolla is a lot better than it used to be. But you're making the you're really painting the Corolla into a dark corner here. <laughs> yes. Okay. So let me let me be honest. You're right. the The hatchback is a lot of fun to drive, and the sedan, which uses the same running gear without the the hatchback, essentially, is just as fun to drive okay. as the the hatchback. This Apex Edition has upgrades that make it even more responsive, and I was really impressed with the handling and uh, steering feel of this vehicle for a Corolla. Like, I need to make sure I'm I'm adding that. This does not feel like a sports car. It doesn't it doesn't feel like a BRZ um, or a BRZ. It doesn't feel like like uh, like a Veloster N or anything like that, but it has its own you know feel that is actually really engage, engaging. And I I was really ex- surprised by that. And I actually compared the Corolla to an Elantra during this week, and I found that while the Elantra is a better product all around, the Corolla Apex didn't you know was a thoroughly uh, you know fun car to drive once that you know that condition calls for it. It's so- even lowered by. By 0.6 of an inch. Oh, so wait. So now we have we had the appearance package. You said we yep. just had. Then you said, oh no, there's a sound package too, and now yep. there's a suspension package. That, that's true. So, it has uh, it lowered by six inch by 0.6 inches, um, and it has improved. Uh, sorry, increased spring rate. It has a solid, unique, solid stabilizer bar, which helps it to feel a little bit more rigid as well. 
And they call something called jounce bumpers, which ensures that the lowered ride height doesn't hinder ride quality. I don't think those things work at all because the car feels very stiff. In fact, just going over, say, a speed bump, you, like, feel the car kind of just bam, like, like crash almost. Okay. And right now in the winter, you have a lot of potholes and you really got to look out for those in this Apex Edition. I'm going to be honest. At the beginning of this segment, it really sounded like you were going to talk about this terrible version of the Corolla. And yet you've slowly peeled back layers like an onion that make it sound pretty cool. Exactly. And, okay, and so pretty that kind and of something like a jawbreaker. There's like you're right, there's layers and at the middle is this tasty sour item. <laughs> well, so how much am I paying for all this stuff because honestly, if I wanted to buy a Corolla, I think this is the one I would buy. But really because you can get it. So all right. What appeals to you? The manual Just answer my question. How much am I paying for this? How much are you paying for this? I will tell you in just a moment. Here we go. Are you ready for this? Yes. Starting price, $25,000. Okay. And so that's an upgrade of what over the previous trim? Like the the next trim down? The next – and the L and the LE are $19,000 and $20,000. Oh, wow. So you're paying five grand for this? And then there's a regular SE model, which is just $22,000. So do I... This is like $3,000 over the regular SE version. Do you lose anything? Like, do you lose any comfort gear? No. Other than the suspension, the you know, that suspension being a little bit stiffer and the lowered suspension as Okay. Well. So it's not that... It, it, this is like the, the ultimate Corolla. Well, I mean, this isn't even like the fully loaded. No, there's model. an XSE Apex Edition as well. Yes. It's twenty eight thousand. I'm seeing now. Yes, and there is an XLE version of the Corolla, and then of course there's the hybrids. If you're all you're about is fuel efficiency, there's but that's so much Corolla. I, there's there a are whole so u- many Corollas. There's a whole there's universe. Nine Corollas out there. A whole universe. An SE Nightshade Edition, which means nothing. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know what that is. I'm, I'm certain that's not far off of what we got here. So yes. I, I want to add a few more things about this. Okay. Um, first of all. Uh, the interior of the Corolla is an improvement over past generations. It is a legitimately okay place to to drive. It doesn't feel like that pared down, that, that cheap. There are a few hard plastic panels, but there are also a number of really nice feeling switchgear. However, um, my model has a USB port for Android Auto and Apple CarPlay support, which is, I don't know how to describe this. It is to the left and in under the dashboard of the glove box okay it's just there so when you plug your your cable in it just dangles out of the bottom of the dashboard that's perfect and and the only place to put it is either in the glove box or on the wireless phone charging mat which of course um you can't wirelessly wirelessly charge your phone while it's also um plugged in or at least then you're like taking the spot away from somebody who will be using the wireless phone charger. But this, so, is, this is not unique to the Apex SE edition. No, this is just a Corolla thing, Okay, right? I also wanted to add that this is one of the first times that I've been in a manual transmission vehicle with adaptive cruise control, at least at this level. $25,000, usually when I'm seeing a manual transmission with adaptive cruise control, I'm seeing it in some performance vehicles like, say, a 911. This is, this is kind of unique to me. I wasn't sure what to expect. When you set the cruise limit, um, let's say I I set it at 60 miles per hour, and uh, I'm reaching some some traffic in front of me. The car slows down, uh, and usually I'll want to change the gear. I'll put it into fifth so that I can pass the the vehicle. Once I put it into fifth, the car will accelerate back up to that 
that seat that speed I set, which is rare to me because most manual transmission with cruise control, when I put in the clutch, it usually cancels. That's my experience. It cancels the the cruise control altogether. And so you're telling me that's not that. I'm not saying not anything. I, I remember s- mentioning this to you, and you were not that you weren't that impressed. I'm not super feature. impressed with it because it's a, it sounds like a pretty simple technology. But yes. uh, I'm glad that you are, and that yeah. it's it's something that has improved your Corolla experience. Well, yeah, I mean, and so you're getting the bo- the best of a couple of worlds here, right? Like you've got a manual transmission with safety features or or convenience features like adaptive cruise control and lane keeping. That's already a pretty good a pretty good deal. Then you've got the really good um, steering feel and suspension feel that's found in this Apex Edition, and that's kind of unique. It all comes together in a neat little package here. I need to add, though, only 6,000 of these Apex Editions spread out between the SE and the XSE will only will be available. So if that sounds like the perfect Corolla, as you described it, you gotta be, you got to act quick. I, I think I'll be okay. I think I'll, you know what, I think I'll get my fix just by watching them drive by me on the road. You'll hear them, too. I'll hear them, too. Uh, But honestly, you really built this up to be something terrible, and it turned out to be something pretty cool. Uh, Or if not not cool, then... Right? If not cool, then definitely something interesting and more interesting than a normal Corolla. Well, I think we don't give the Corolla enough credit for being a pretty competent vehicle. The problems with the Corolla is that it has no space in in the rear seats or trunk, and it also... Um, isn't exactly the fastest vehicle to drive. This thing has 169 horsepower, um, and that's it. Like, it just doesn't feel all too punchy. You know what I mean? Yeah, but, I mean, we're going to forgive that, given that it's, you know, not intended to be all that punchy. I know, but there are now some vehicles in this class that have 200 horsepower, right? Sure, but do you want a hot hatch version of the Corolla, or is that what you're saying? Yeah, kind of. (laughs) I think that would be awesome. I mean, imagine that if you had that too. I mean, in the past, there used to be a Corolla. I think it was called the XRS. Um, and it used to have the Camry engine, didn't it? The Camry V6? No, no. The Camry four-cylinder. <laughs> How cool would that? And it would be like in the trunk. Yes. It would, be a, it would get really Corolla. hot when you were driving. <laughs> but I think they should consider uh, – well, I mean, no. It will never happen because I don't think the vehicle was made for it. But a 2.5 liter version of the Camry would be kind of badass. So, is there anything else you you want to say about the about the car? No, but before we finish up the podcast, I want to talk about one of Ben's favorite subjects. This week um, was this thing called CES, or the Consumer Electronics Show, which is a um, a really harrowing experience for the journalists who have covered it. It is both really exciting, but I think once you you cover it, you never want to do it again because it's usually a very big show and it's full of um, these like pie in the sky ideas. And when it comes to the automotive section of CES, it is like, will we ever see what they're talking about in, in production cars? So counterpoint CES is a living hell. Uh, It's like, (laughs) it's as if you took the wheel and tire pavilion at SEMA and multiplied it by a hundred and you're just walking down these aisles of repetitive copycat technologies like a million drones and a million different like hoverboards and all this terribly generic stuff. I remember, I think it was maybe four years ago, Sammy and I attended CES at the same time. And I, I distinctly recall being in my hotel room in Las Vegas having an existential crisis about whether the future of my automotive career was going to be spent reporting on this kind of garbage 
nonsense that no one cares about. And, and, and as Sammy said, features that car companies just bring to CES that will never see production but are talked about like they're the next coming of the entire revolution of the industry itself. And I, I, I almost lost it that night. I was like, this is not the future I want to live in, and I don't want to have anything to do with this terrible event and he talked to me he he didn't come to my room to talk to me because there are limits to to his laziness but he did <laughs> he did chat with me online from his hotel room also in vegas and managed to talk me down and calm me so uh, i appreciate well, that well i think i i think i reminded you of the audi gecko and uh quattro uh lunar lunar quattro that we were shown. lunar lunar mission question mark <laughs> Yeah, so, so I love I love CES because it is a it is it is wild. Like it makes no sense. One of the darkest and, times in my career. I'm sorry, man. It's not why I enjoyed it, but it, when you go to CES, there's going to be an, an automaker describing something like, "Oh, this car will have AI, and the headlights will wink at you, at, like suggestively, and will talk to you and tell you how uh, ask you how your day was." And this, and this car will call your house, so when you get home, it will release a pheromone that reduces stress and makes you forget that you hate everything about your life. And you're like, "Whoa!" And then that doesn't happen, and you keep hating everything, and you're like, "When is it going to happen for me?" Exactly. And I remember the one year I went, and they were boasting about the Internet of Things and everything. So your fridge would talk to your car, so that when you past the grocery store you should it will remind you I don't want my car to know what I do to my fridge <laughs> exactly so anyways i bring all this up because um this year CES was virtual was virtual so you didn't see those halls upon halls of uh, copycat technology um and it is a very big show it does tire you out uh if if you don't have the stamina for it but wow, we did get fired. a <laughs> we did get a very unique, uh, a, a number of weird concepts as usual. And this week, I want to talk about the Cadillac PAV Pod concept, which is uh, for it's a square, like it's a square on wheels. I don't know how else to describe this. This is they, the nadir of automotive design. Every few years, a car company comes out with something that looks like a toaster or a pod or a box with no windows. And they're like, this is the future of mobility. And you're going to sit inside this and be sealed off from the world. And you're just going to hang out with your buds. And maybe you're going somewhere. We don't know. And neither do you because there's no windows, but there's a glass ceiling. So you can see the stars that you'll never reach. Yeah, so what is, so let's describe, it is a, you're right, a toaster. It is a perfectly shaped as a toaster. It has a Cadillac badge up front. Um, I think it has three doors It just that just like slide out of the way or something like that when you want to get inside. And inside is what looks like a, uh, an airport lounge, I guess, a really hoity-toity airport lounge. Inside reminds me of like, if you were to go inside and, uh, uh, what's the word, a euthanasia pod? Where they were oh, like, you're, you've reached the end of your usefulness for a capitalist society, and they, you're, you're 85 or 90 years old, and they're like, come come with us to this pod. And they put you in, and it's all white and glowing, and it's relaxing, and then you don't even feel the needle go into your arm. And then your body is recycled for the, you know, the, the blood sacrifice that we demand for our society. That's really what this Cadillac vehicle reminds me of, except it's mobile. Um, and then, as Ben mentioned, there are no windows. Instead, there is a like an elongated porthole um, at, I guess, head height that you just like peer out of like you're in a bunker, which is very odd. And naturally, they tell me that uh, it has some tricks. When passengers enter the pod, the car reads our vital signs using uh, biometric sensors. Scary. And these, yes, and these readings tell the PAV how to adjust the heat, lighting, humidity, 
and of course aromatherapy within the vehicle. In, in, in case you can't tell, I think this is the worst aspect of the auto industry. The, Why? Because this the is toaster, not the toaster mobility. Yes, context? because I have zero interest in anything I'm not driving or can't be driven. It's just yeah. it's it's not a it's not an automobile to me. It is a bus. So I don't write about buses. I understand there are bus enthusiasts. I can appreciate buses for what they are. I'm not super into them, but nor do I have any interest in a tiny bus with no windows <laughs> that that I don't even know who's driving. It's not even really discussed in this concept. It's just I ass- think it's self-driving. It's assumed that it has some autonomous technology. And we're supposed to get excited about this? No, this is a depressing view of the future. You're crazy. I mean, of course we're, we're – the, my, my issue is it's not that this will exist or this might not exist. Um, if it happens, awesome. Awesome? There, Wait a minute. Yeah. No, explain that to me. Explain what's awesome going, about it's this. Not for, it's not for me. Just like a um, – what is another car that is not for me? Describe a car that is not for me. Okay. Ben. No, no, no. I want to go back to how this is awesome. It is a windowless box that drives itself. What is awesome? Some people about are going to enjoy that. They want to enjoy be it. isolated from the outside environment as they drive past the poor people in this Cadillac PAV concept. Look, public transit is useful. But I would say it's but a, not for rich people. I apparently. would say it's a huge stretch to say it's enjoyable, and I think this falls under the same rubric, if not an even worse qualification, because it has no windows. What if it breaks down? What are you going to do? You can't even catch the attention of someone walking by to rescue you because you're trapped in this scrolling coffin. My biggest concern about this is that it comes from a company known uh, for their design, maybe not recently, but it has it has zero exterior personality. It looks terrifying. Of course actually. not. It's it's totally anonymous, and that's you're, you're right. This that's the other horrible thing about these transport pods is they in no way represent the spirit of the companies that build them. Because yeah. once once the automotive market moves to a world where you're traveling in a windowless coffin, then it doesn't matter what they look like, and it doesn't even really matter what they're like inside. They're all going to be the same. You know, it's like but I think- it's like headphones. Who cares what your headphones look like? You don't care. You don't really care. There are a few people who will care and will use them as a style accessory, but that they're in the minority. You know, any con- once your car becomes a generic <laughs> consumer product. And you no longer are participating in branding or styling or design. And it doesn't make sense to me for car companies that, that currently building vehicles that very much rely on those things to participate in these exercises. So, I mean, I Ben, these like autonomous bus pods, they could change like public transportation. But for Cadillac to take this sort of concept and say, well, it can also be non-public transportation – it could be your own personal, like, uh, limo. I don't know. Like, this feels – that's where I lose my interest. Like I said, it might work for these really ultra-rich people um, who might want an alternative to an Escalade and instead not drive a big uh, um, unwieldy <laughs> SUV or something like that. And here's the other thing about public trans- transportation. Once you start putting everyone inside individual pods, the road system collapses. Oh, yeah. There's no way sure. that, like, you know, you see the sign on the side of a bus that says this bus takes – 25 or 30 cars off the road, right? You see those signs all the time. And and for the most part, that's viewed as an emissions thing. It's like, oh, great, one bus takes the place of all these cars that could be idling and, and spewing stuff up into the atmosphere. But it's also a, a physical dimensions thing. That bus is not the same size as 30 or 40 cars, but it's able to hold that many people. If you suddenly right. put us in these death pods that are just... <laughs> 
everywhere, littering the landscape like lime scooters or whatever the, the heck they're called. Uh, oh, bird no. scooters. I, for, I almost forgot about lime and bird yeah, scooters. Yeah, it's going to be the same thing, man, except infinitely worse. Anyway, I realize I'm <laughs> ranting. I, re- this, I, I really do not like this technology. This is both the worst of the auto industry and the worst of CES. <laughs> okay. So with with that in mind, I'm going to ask our listeners to either uh, share their thoughts on, on CES and these kinds of um, mobility future technology uh, with us. I would really appreciate that. You can do that a number of ways. First, you can head to our website, unnamedautomotivepodcast.com. There's a contact form. You fill that out, and it lands in our inbox. We'll, we'll get your information. We can respond back to you. We can talk about what you're saying on the next podcast, which would be fun. Um, and... What what else should we what else should we how else can they get in touch with us, Ben? Uh, I mean they can do it on social media. Did you say that? No, I didn't. You can find us on Instagram. I'm at Hunting Benjamin, and you can find Sammy on Twitter. He's at Sammy underscore hot like you're laughing. You can also email me directly. Did you mention that, Sammy? No, of course not. Benjamin at Benjaminhunting.com. Before we go though, there's something else that I wanted to talk about, and that's this book that I've been reading for the last week or so, um, about uh, Jaguar. And this is something different than what you would normally think of with Jaguar because I know over the last 20 years or so, the company has really kind of, you know, moved into the luxury segment hardcore. They're not nearly as involved in racing in the public eye as they once were. But there was a time when Jaguar was dominating sports car racing around the world. And that's what this book is about. It's by Velo- it's, it's from Veloc Publishing, and the book is called TWR's Le Mans Winning Jaguars. Um, Sammy, do you, know, do you know anything about TWR? TWR? Yeah. No. So TWR was Tom Walkinshaw Racing, and he was a Scottish guy who was a successful race car driver and then became an even more successful race car builder. And he did a bunch of stuff all around the world. He had a he he's the one who created Holden Special Vehicles um, in Australia. He also had a bunch of touring car championships in the early '80s. But uh, with Jaguar, he's best known for building a uh, a pair of of sports car prototype racers that won back-to-back world sports car championships in 87 88 they also won in 91 and uh, they managed to win at Le Mans um, in 88 and 90 and these cars were all powered by Jaguar V12 Sammy wow okay I mean this was an era when Porsche had uh, their their turbocharged cars when Mercedes Sauber had their cars out there and Jaguar was able to take what was a very old engine design and Take advantage of the fact that they a lot of the series they were running in with these cars were based on fuel mileage. So you were given a certain amount of fuel to use for the whole race, and you had to build a car that could take advantage of that by by producing power that could win, but also not using up too much gas and making you sandbag for the last 10 or 20 laps. And TWR was really, really good at that with the V12. Uh, they also built a twin-turbo v, uh, V6, and they were also involved in building the XJ220, which was kind of the road going it's a huge deal yeah it was the road going version of the technology that came out of these race cars but what's neat about this book um is the it's written by john starkey and what's really neat about it is it kind of walks you through every single season where twr was building cars for jaguar and there's lots of interviews in here with the drivers who were involved for each season the engineers who were building the cars and people who knew tom walkinshaw who passed away several years ago um what impresses me the most about this book is I, I read a lot of these and they're notorious, at least in my mind, for providing you with great information about a subject, but not necessarily great writing. 
And okay. this is not the case with this book. The it, The narrative is put together well. Everything is well organized. And it kind of makes you want to keep reading from one season to the next, even if you're already familiar with how well Jaguar did at Le Mans. Okay, that's impressive. I mean, I'm really happy to to hear that it to me usually these books kind of this is like a book not like a coffee table like yeah it's just uh, like a, a you know it, it's a hardcover but it's 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 a book that you could hold in your hands it's not it's not something you would just display it does have a right, ton because, of it does have a ton of photos in it um which is cool because not only is it like racing action photos but there's a lot of stuff you'll never find anywhere online including like uh close-ups of the engines and the aero and the suspension designs that were in these cars this is the only real way to find this kind of information these days Nice. I love that. Um, anything that made you just like what make what like information made the book really worth it to you? I, I just think that if you're a Jaguar fan and if you're a Lama fan, uh, this is the ultimate kind of source for any insight you wanted into the programs as to how Jaguar and TWR were able to win. Because not only does it talk about what happened, uh, you know, the events on the track and everything, that's, that's a matter of public record. But what's really neat is you get insight into why decisions were made, um, what the impact of competitors like Porsche and Mercedes had on how these cars were designed. And there's a whole bunch of in-depth stuff about aero and what did and didn't work in terms of keeping these cars stuck to the track. And this is an era too when Le Mans didn't have the, sh- the du- double chicanes on the Mulsanne straight, right? Oh, right. So these cars were doing 230, 240 miles an hour, and that's really crazy. <laughs> so uh, to be able to do that consistently and safely, there's a whole section of the book that talks about the different bodies that they put on the cars to test because they would bring different versions of the car to Le Mans and then decide which ones they were actually going to race based on how they qualified in practice. So there's a lot of neat insider info about that. Um, if you want to get the book, the easiest way to do that is to go to the, the website of the publisher. It's veloce.co.uk. That's V-E-L-O-C-E. And the book's about 30 bucks. I'll give you the ISBN so it's easy to order. It's 978-1-787-115-68-2. And we can put that we can put that in the show notes, right? But we can. We can. Will we? Should we? I think we should. I think we Better should. Better than them having to rewind 30 seconds uh, or 10 seconds. That's we'll we'll definitely you. have a link to it. In any case, okay. like I, 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 I want to just mention again, I read a lot of these books. This is one of the better written ones out there. It's not just a bunch of facts being regurgitated and put on the page. This is someone who was clearly invested in the program, cared a lot about it, and hunted down a lot of the people who were directly involved to get their opinions. Very cool. All right. That's that's awesome. That's a really good way to, to close out the podcast this week. I think we've already mentioned the website, Unnamed Automotive Podcast, um, where you can get in touch with us, but you can also see all of our previous episodes, and you can subscribe to us very easily. Another way to do that is by going to your favorite podcast client or podcatcher, if you will. Uh, search for us there and subscribe. Ben, what are you going to be talking about next week? Next week, I'm going to be talking about an electric vehicle, Sammy, the uh, Kia Nero. Ooh. And I'll be talking about the Hyundai Elantra. I've had a little bit more time with, with it. And as I mentioned, I compared it to, to this Corolla that I drove on this episode. And we'll be comparing it to a Mazda 3. So lots of compact car talk next week. All right. Goodbye, everybody. Take care.